0: Let's pray, God. I thank you as always for this room and these people. Thank you. Um, I'm overwhelmed uh, that your spirit truly shows up in a middle school band auditorium, Sunday after Sunday, and and so it is our honor and pleasure to be with you and to be together. And so, I pray that um, that uh, in our time. Together today, that we will know you better and know your ways better because of of these few minutes this morning. We say, "Come, Holy Spirit." In your name. We pray. Amen. I love our church uh, because people heard me cough, and so many people just met me with cough drops over here. It is the greatest thing in the world. So bear with me that I have, I have a cough drop too. Is it allergy season in July? This is what is happening. Um, before we, uh, really dive deeply into Psalm 16 today, I want to spend the first part of our time together, uh, just talking a little bit about the Psalms in general. Um, we covered some of this a few weeks ago, uh, but summer uh, around here, we're probably everywhere sort of means an eternal rotation of people at the beach. So I don't know if you were here or not. So we'll just, we'll, we'll cover it again. (laughs) We're usually like every other week. Which is, which is summer. So, um, but, so we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about how reading and studying the Psalms is a little bit different than reading and studying, is all, studying all the rest of the scriptures. Um, because the Psalms, they aren't primarily written as informational texts. They're not just, just uh, texts about God. They are texts about God, but also um, texts that give us words to speak to God. And that sort of makes them a little bit distinct. The Psalms, um, again, not just informational text, they're poetry. They're poetry and songs, and that requires a different lens and a different kind of eyes and a different set of processing skills in order uh, to see it. And so, so poetry and songs, they're rich in metaphor and nuance and imagery and depth. And for some of you, you're like, finally, that's what I live for. And for others of you, uh, you may be literal and logical folks in the rooms, the Psalms might be a real struggle for you. And I want you to know we see you too. We absolutely do. Um, the Psalms might be a struggle. Uh, it may be in your life that everybody seems to love them, but when you go to them, they don't really make sense or they don't resonate with you the way they might resonate with others. And And the truth is that poetry is a strange type of writing. Uh, It's a strange type of writing to study, to talk about, uh, because there's so much going on with it. It's like level beyond the levels. There's so much going on in a poem um, right on the surface. And then there's stuff going on in a poem like within the surface and then below the surface. And it's like level after level uh, of things going on. There's levels of straightforwardness and obvious meaning and information. But there are also levels beyond that and deeper than that of, of nuance and metaphor and, depth, and that can tend to be a little bit confusing, particularly, again, for the, for the logical brains in the room. I had a friend, um, this was just a few weeks ago, uh, he is possibly the smartest human being I know. Like, legitimately the smartest person I know, and he's also in his mid-30s. And just a few weeks ago, he said, you said nuance on stage, will you please define what nuance means to me? And I was like, I don't know if I can I don't know if you speak the language of nuance so if that is very confusing to you you're in good company of very intelligent people so um so I want to do a little poetry lesson with you um so I uh loved English in high school anyone else okay good hold on sorry that's really gross (laughs) it's drying my mouth out I'm so sorry this is a morning isn't it we're summer here Okay, I loved English in high school. My favorite teacher was Miss Freeman. So I'm not, I didn't just love English. I particularly loved Miss Freeman. I wanted her to think that I knew stuff. I wanted her to think that I got it. I wanted her to think I was really smart and capable and all of those things. I just really wanted to impress her. It was very important for me that she think I was cultured as a 15-year-old, you know, um, so, uh, I remember that uh, in my sophomore year of high school, we spent, and I can't, I think I wrote an entire class period, but I think it was actually two entire classes, so two entire class periods, talking about a poem uh, by William Carlos Williams called The Red Wheelbarrow. Does anyone remember this poem? Yeah, okay, one person. Great. Okay. The Red Wheelbarrow. And so um, I want to do a little lesson with it now. I want to read it to you now. So for those of you who are like, seriously, another poem, it's 16 words. So you can hang with me. So Dixie, okay. I'm going to read you this poem. This is it. The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That's it. That's the whole poem. Whole thing right there. And we spent three hours in a class with 15-year-olds trying to answer this question about that poem, what does it mean? What does it mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. You know, it does not mean um, a red wheelbarrow holds stuff in the rain next to some chickens. We tried that one. First answer, it does not mean that. Not at all. It turns out that that isn't in any way what that poem is about, and that's really confusing, right? Is it still out there? Because that poem really seems to be about a red wheelbarrow. That holds some stuff besides some chickens, anyone right that that 's what it seems to be about and um, and, and and even still that 's what it seems to be about um, as i 've gotten older, I have grown to love poetry, uh, but growing up i found I felt like um it took p- some poems that like really resonated me- with me for me to, to, to love it, because I felt like poetry in school, it felt like some giant trick. Anyone else? It felt like a huge trick. Like poets were these master pranksters, and they, they wrote these poems about wheelbarrows, but then like from deep within them, they scream out, "Psych! <laughs> you only thought that was about a wheelbarrow. It's really about economic injustice in the Northeast. Or whatever you think it's about. Um, (laughs) And I think sometimes for us, the Psalms can feel a little bit like that. Like they are amazing. And yet sometimes they can be a little bit big, a little bit overwhelming. We don't know where to start. We might feel a little tricked. Like here's David and he's so sad. Then all of a sudden he's happy. Or David, he's so happy. Then all of a sudden he's sad and we feel a little bit tricked. Uh, Some of the Psalms, they say confusing things, like um, there are people who are like, you have to read the Bible literally, and that's really tricky with the Psalms, because like uh, Psalm 19 tells the reader, it it seems like it tells the reader they're supposed to eat their Bible. The literal original language in Psalm 19 says, eat the Torah in order to be filled up, and that feels like a dangerous thing to take literally, you know? You may have tried it. I don't know. Uh, There there are lines in the Psalms that that are filled with like really straightforward, obvious meaning and and information. Um, But there are also lines with imagery and nuance and metaphor like eat the Torah. They are multi-layered, multi-level poems. And we should read them as such. We should read them the way that they were written. For me, when it comes to the psalms, it helps me to think about them like a spiral staircase. Um, That a spiral staircase, uh, it's taking us deeper and deeper, the the deeper levels, they're taking us deeper and deeper into the song, into the original meaning, into what it means for us. That it's not trying to obscure or complicate the meaning of the psalms, but taking it into a deeper place with deeper impact on our life and our place and our hope. Uh, But that certainly makes them hard to comment on and it makes them hard to preach on or write about or sometimes even read or study because there's so much packed into each line, so much packed into each place of that spiral staircase. So for example, our Psalm today, Psalm 16, um, uh when Nick read it, he read a Psalm of David. David wrote this song for himself. On one level, this is a song that David wrote for himself uh, to God. And on another level, uh, it's, a, it's a prophecy. It's a song about Jesus, a song for Jesus. It gets quoted later in the New Testament about its relationship to Jesus. And on another level, on the same staircase, it is a cornerstone psalm for people who follow Jesus. Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. There's a lot going on in these songs, more than hits the page. And so around here we think it's not just important to read the Bible, we want to talk about how we read the Bible. So we do weird poetry lessons and things like that to talk about how we actually read the scriptures. And so I want to give you a a tool that's really helped me when it comes to the Psalms. Uh, it's a way of categorizing them, of kind of putting them in a category so you know what you're dealing with in a sense. And it comes from a guy named uh, Walter Brueggemann. And we've actually talked about this idea before, but I think it's so helpful and important that it's absolutely worth uh, revisiting. And again, you might have been at the beach last year when we talk about it. So um, Walter Brueggemann, he's a fantastic, I'm not down on the beach, by the way. Go to the beach, everyone, okay. Um, Walter Brueggemann, he is a fantastic Old Testament scholar uh, who's written a number of books on the Psalms, uh, one of which is called The Message of the Psalms. It's the last book in your bulletin, which again, are ranked. So um, it it is a great book, it's short, but it's really, really dense. Um, And in this book, he breaks down the Psalms into three really helpful categories. Um, He says that all of the Psalms kind of fit in these three categories, and they are Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of reorientation. Again, this might feel familiar to you. Essentially, it's this. In the book of Psalms, there are songs and poems of orientation. Psalms and poems uh, about creation, about where we come from, songs of worship and belonging of our standing before God, songs uh, that serve as foundations of what we believe about God and what we believe about us and what we believe about the world and how all of those things collide. Those are the Psalms of Orientation. And then uh, there are songs of disorientation, sort of the opposite, songs and psalms and poems written about or, or from a loss of identity or, or a loss in general, um, written in, so, in seasons of life that are confusing or they feel helpless or they don't make sense. Uh, the, song, the psalms of disorientation are songs from a place of mental and spiritual confusion or maybe a place of sadness or lament. And then there's a third category. There are psalms of reorientation or new orientation. And essentially, these are are songs that are written with reminders of what's to come, of where this whole thing is going, songs about hope and rescue and renewal, songs about new creation and resurrection. These psalms are beautiful reminders that disorientation is never the end of the story for God's people. These are my favorite ones. Um, This is incredibly helpful for me because we really need all three. My life needs all three of these categories to exist. I need the foundation of the Psalms of Orientation. I need the humanity of the Psalms of Disorientation. And and I need the hope of the Psalms of New Orientation. We need all of these things in our life. Uh, Because like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Psalms, they offer us words and prayers and songs to sing back to God in his own words. Essentially, that's what the Psalms are. They are offering us uh, the ability to speak to God in his own language, using his own words. And so it's so helpful for me to know that there's different ways of doing that. It's helpful for me to know that in hard seasons or confusing seasons or really sad seasons or disoriented seasons, that there are Psalms like 42 that we looked at last week or Psalm 30 or Psalm 130, And then when I'm longing for hope, when I'm longing to reorient myself in the the ways and the things of God to remind myself who God is and who I am and what we exist for and where this whole thing is going, it's good for me that there are words in the scriptures like, Um, The back half of Psalm 30. So some Psalms really are multi-categoried. So the front half of Psalm 30, it's this like wild uh, verse after verse of disorientation. And all of a sudden there's this switch and and the Psalmist is reminding himself of where this whole thing is going. There's Psalms like, uh, it's poetry. So there's gonna be multi-category thing, right? Um, uh, There's Psalm 40, Psalm 27, these places that are reminders of hope of of where this whole thing is going. And, And then it's so helpful for me to find places in the scripture like our lesson today psalm 16 uh, so the lessons of uh, psalms of orientation that are like cornerstones in my life cornerstones in our lives and words and faith uh, uh, reminders of what we believe about god what he has said about us and what he has done for us reminders that he is where we go for refuge and safety that all of the good things in our life come from him. That he has put us in a community of people, that our lives are more than health or wealth, climbing ladders or earning a place. That our lives are not marked by what we do or what we get. But what Psalm 16 reminds us is that our birthright as followers of Jesus is him. It's him. Our birthright as followers of Jesus is not this guarantee of health or this guarantee of wealth. Our birthright as followers of Jesus is God, the God of the universe who is always with us, the one who has not let death have the final word in our life and the one who has declared himself the final word in our life. It is a good psalm. Psalm 16 is a good, good place to be. I told you it shows up in the New Testament too. Both Peter and Paul quote Psalm 16 in sermons they give. Um, In Acts 2 at Pentecost, we talked about Pentecost uh, just a couple of weeks ago. uh, Peter, he comes and he stands in front of uh, the Jewish people and he gives this incredible sermon where he says this. He says, people of Israel, Jesus is who he said he was. He is who he said he was. And then he says that this psalm is one that points beyond David and to Jesus himself, that this psalm is a prophecy pointing to the cross, that this was the song of Jesus who hung from a tree with these words in him and about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. For Peter, Psalm 16 is an Easter psalm. It's a resurrection psalm. Uh, Paul refers to it in a really similar way in Acts 13. He says that David did, in fact, die and go to the ground, but this is a psalm that points to Jesus who was raised from the dead. Psalm 16, it's, it's a psalm that orients us, that grows us and holds us steady. It is a foundation psalm. It's a catching psalm. Here's what I mean by that. Um, there's a writer I love named Henry Nowen. And, um, and Henry nowen he was he was a professor at Harvard and Yale. He is this brilliant theologian, um, but he had this fascination with the circus which I love. Like, you need your brainiacs to also have some weird hobby on the side, you know? And so, Henry Nowen, he, he um, was obsessed with the circus and particularly trapeze artists. Like, it was just his thing. It's this thing he loved for his 60th birthday, apparently. I was just reading this this week. For his 60th birthday, his friends threw him a circus party and hired people to let him do the trapeze. So, I turned 40 in a few years, just... Putting that out there. Okay, so he, he loved trapeze artists, and he was um, especially fond of a German trapeze group called the Flying Rodleys. And, um, and he was fascinated by them. And so this Harvard-Yale uh, professor took uh, time away to follow this trapeze artist. Like, some of you followed Grateful Dead or Dave Matthews Band. Henry Nouwen followed the Flying Rodleys. And, and he was fascinated. What he said about these trapeze artists is that they were theology in motion. And he was watching the things that he believed. And so he followed them around, and he got to know them, and he got to know more about their craft. Uh, There were five members of the Flying Rodleys. You can Google them, R-O-D-L-E-I-G-S, Flying Rodleys. There's videos on it. It's really interesting. Anyway, so there were five members of the Flying Rodleys. There were three flyers and two catchers. So three people who would fly and do tricks all in the air and then two men who would hang from their knees most often on a trapeze with their hands free reaching out to catch the flyers. And so the flyers, they would swing in the air and they would do all kinds of tricks and they would end up in the catcher's hands. That was their job. And so one day, uh, Henry Nowen was sitting with Rodley, who was the head of the Flying Rodleys. And, um, and he, they were talking about how the trapeze worked and, and how all of these things happened. And, and Nowen was saying, "You must, the flyers must have to have a lot of trust in the catcher and, and all of these things. And he finally looked at Rodley and he said, how does it work? Like, really, how does it work? What is it, what is you know, what's like the base? How does this actually work? And this was what Rodley said. He said, the secret to this, the secret is that the flyer really doesn't do much at all. And the catcher does everything. And what and recognized from that point on is that the flyer, the person soaring through the air, is not the true star of the trapeze show. Because the tricks that the flyers do, this soaring dance of the flyer is only possible because he fully trusts that he will be caught Everything for the trapeze depends on the catcher. The flyer just stretches out his arms and trusts. In in a video that Nowen made about this trapeze theology, he said, um, he said this uh, about the, the connection of trapeze artists and the life of faith. I want to read his quote. He says, I can only fly freely when I know that there is a catcher to catch me. If we are to take risks to be free in the air and in life, we have to know that there is a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. I think that Psalm 16 is one of David's orienting songs. A song that would forever remind him to trust God as his catcher. His refuge, his safety at his right hand, his joy. A reminder that he, the flyer, did so little while the catcher did everything. Psalm 16, it also, I think, was a song of Jesus, an orienting song. Jesus, who made himself nothing, humbling himself to a cross because he knew he would be caught. Because he came with and from the catcher. And I wonder if some of us might need the same reminder today. If we might need a song of orientation, crying out for us, reminding us that we can trust the catcher. We can trust the catcher. Because if we are going to be people of God, then we will have to take risk. And wild things will happen to us. And we will have to let go. And we will have to fly to be free in the air and in life. And in order to do that, we have to know that when we come down from it all, we will be caught. We will be caught. You will be caught. Do you know that? Do you know that you will always Be caught, that it won't always look exactly how you expect the catching to look. It may not always look exactly how you want the catching to look, but you will be caught. The great hero will always reach for you. Trust the catcher. Trust the catcher who is your portion. Trust the catcher who draws your lines around you in pleasant places. That was the Psalms. That means the catcher who draws lines around himself and invites you in in pleasant places. Trust the catcher who does not promise that you will always be healthy or you will always be wealthy or anything like that, but forever stretches out his hands and offers you more of himself. Trust the catcher. Here's what we're gonna do. Um, the band's gonna come up, and um, we're gonna take a sort of extended uh, say law. We do this every week. It's another rhythm of ours. We we take a few minutes at the end of the sermon, um, and we just sit. We stay for a little while. Uh, we linger for a little while. And we're gonna do that. We're gonna sit a little bit longer. I think there's a few more verses than normal. They'll be on the screen. Um, And what my hope is, is that we can sit for a few minutes here in this psalm, remembering the one who catches us. My hope is that for the next few minutes, you will let these words catch you, that you will let them remind you who God is and what he has done for you, that you will let them help you trust the catcher. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll just be quiet for a few minutes. God, uh, when we come in this room, we come with all sorts of different things. Some of us, we come fresh on the heels of vacation, maybe rested and hopeful. Some of us, we come fresh on the heels of heartbreak, of trauma, of confusion, of broken places. Some of us, we come somewhere in the middle, maybe not even fully aware of where we are in our own brain, our own guts, our own heart. We all come with different things, but all of us need to be caught. And so God, we ask you in these next few minutes, will you remind us of our foundation? Will you remind us that? though it doesn't always look exactly how we think it will look or exactly how we want it to look, that you have always caught us and you will always catch us. That because things haven't gone exactly how we wanted them to, it doesn't mean that you let us go. What you promised was you and you have never left us is that feeling alone isn't the same as being alone, that you are our refuge, you are our safety, you are the portion.